This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. Our host is usually Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Uh, He's out this week. I am Liz Gill. Now, Valentine's Day is next week, so... If your loved one is expecting something, (laughs) this is the time to start preparing for it. Um, And this is kind of funny because this is really a way to show your loved ones that you care about their mental well-being. Our our guest today is one of our most popular guests. It's Kelly Kyle from the firm of Kyle Wynn on to discuss our most popular topic Wills and estate planning. Um, how do you see this as a, a gift to your loved one? Liz, I can tell you uncategorically, if you do your estate planning and do it the right way, your family members after you are gone will think a lot more positively of you. <laughs> it, it's as simple as that. I have seen families that go through it when somebody <laughs> passes away or even worse, maybe becomes incapacitated and they have no plan in place. And you just would not believe the chaos that that wreaks upon a family. But if you have done your planning, you've done it the right way, it's going to be so much simpler for those you leave behind. It's going to save them lots and lots of money. It's going to save them time. It's going to protect their privacy. And again, they're just going to think a lot better of you after you're gone if you've done that for them. Look at it as a favor that you're doing to your family members. I did have a friend when we've talked about decluttering our homes because nobody's kids wants your wedding china. Nobody's kids wants great aunt somebody's urn or uh, things. And the friend said, no, I'm not going to declare. Let, let let them do that. <laughs> yeah. My mother was one of those who uh, thrived on clutter, I suppose. And um, when she passed away, my sister and I were left with the task of uh, cleaning out the attic. And we said if we could have knocked out one end of the uh, eaves of the house and started at one end and just pushed everything out into a dumpster, we nearly would have been better off doing that. But, yeah, do your do your family a favor. Do your estate planning clean out. Don't leave them with a mess. It's just all going to go to a a thrift shop or something like that. Um, You're holding on to it for your own emotional reasons. Let it go. So I'm so glad to have Kelly Kyle on the show today. You know, and usually this is one of our shows that gets the most phone calls. So if you're thinking about calling in, you do need to call in. Kelly, remind us about uh, your background and your area of practice. Certainly. Well, um, I grew up in North Louisiana and came to Mississippi College School of Law back in 1989. That's 35 years ago. That's really hard for me to believe that I have been involved in the law for 35 years. But I graduated from MC in 1992. I really had kind of always thought I would go back to Louisiana to practice law. But anyway, I ended up staying here 
ultimately did get licensed in Louisiana. And back in 2014, the firm that I'm a part of opened a satellite office in Arcadia, Louisiana, my hometown. So I still get to go over there and practice law and see people that I've known for a long time. But uh, my practice here in Mississippi uh, is centered around our main office, which is in Madison. Uh, We have a satellite office down on the Gulf Coast at Diamond Head and another one up in um, Hernando. And my law partner, Elizabeth Wynn, and I have been in business together for about 10 years now. And she's licensed in Tennessee, so we can help clients in three states. And what we do is estate planning and elder law. And uh, those things just kind of go hand in hand. Uh, Although we tell people you don't have to be elderly to do estate planning. Those don't have to be mutually exclusive. So, um, again, we, we just focus on those two areas, estate planning and elder law. That's really all that we do. I have done lots of things in my past. I've done divorces. I've done personal injury. Uh, I've done criminal law. But I'm really glad to have left all of those things behind and concentrate on this area because it's really all about helping people, make, making them feel better, Um, And it seems like every client, when they leave our offices after they have signed their estate planning documents or clasping that big binder of documents to their chest, and we hear it all the time, we don't, you just don't know how much better we feel knowing we've taken care of this and you've given us peace of mind. And those three words, peace of mind, are are really what we build our practice around. Well, we've had, well, I guess, you know, everyone has... Most everyone has had, you know, death in their family. Uh, I've lost both of my parents, and, you know, both of them had good intentions on their wills, and both of them just caused no end of chaos. So tell us, let's, 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 do, let's do two ends of the spectrum. Give us an example of where a person or a couple had a great estate plan. Either it was um, simple or complex, and that did bring peace of mind to their loved ones. What did they have that was great? What was What's the A plus? Okay. I can give you uh, two great parallel stories. These are two that I fall back on pretty frequently. Because um, we had done a plan for this lady uh, a year or so before she ultimately passed away, and it was a situation in which her one of her sons was visiting from out of town over the Thanksgiving holidays, and we even went to her home to get her documents signed over the Thanksgiving holiday, and they just greatly appreciated us being able to do that. And uh, this was maybe a year or so before COVID, and she lived a year or two after that. But ultimately, she passed away, and her son, who was back in from out of town, came in to see me, and we started the process of transferring the assets from her revocable trust that we had prepared for her. That's the type of plan we had done. So uh, we were able to wrap up that estate uh, in probably 30 to 60 days. We had all of the financial assets transferred from the trust to her sons. We had the home there in Jackson transferred to her son that had lived with her, and she wanted him to have the house when she was done. All of that was done within just a very short period of time. 
But the same morning I met with that son to get things started to disperse the assets, I also met with a family who had lost a, a father who had done no estate planning. Uh, here, here comes the other end of the spectrum. So we had to deal with a probate of that gentleman. And he lived in Rankin County. And there's a great chancery court system over there. Really, all of the courts here in the metro area, I, I just love working with all of them. Great judges. But uh, in any event, uh, this uh, probate that we opened went on about nine months, maybe closer to 12. But, you know, these were two families that were starting at exactly the same point. They had lost their family member on nearly the same day, certainly within a few weeks of each other. One family benefited from the planning that had already been done, and they were done just in a short period of time. The other ones were having to deal with a situation with no planning, and it took them a lot longer. It cost them more money overall. Um, it, it's just a much better situation if you do your planning, and that, that's what I want to emphasize to people, the need to do that planning in advance. My, I think my dad's estate took 10 years. Oh, my goodness. He had left a percentage to individuals, and so the percentages couldn't be determined until the total. Exactly. All the assets, I determined. guess, had to be liquidated and put in the pot, and yeah. then you decide what, yeah. what percentage. And <laughs> it, was, it was a frustrating, it was a very frustrating time. So, and not something you want to put your kids through. No, no, I don't. So we're, we're going to have lots of time today to go through the steps. We'll take some questions. We'll remember that you are not giving legal advice. You're telling people what the law is. That's right. And what uh, other people have done. And we do want to make our uh, listeners aware today is Tuesday, February 6th. On Thursday, February 8th, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in the case of Trump versus Anderson. Former President Trump and his attorneys are challenging a Colorado Supreme Court ruling that prevents his name from appearing on the ballot in that state. So MPB and NPR's coverage is going to begin at 9 a.m. Central Time. We're not sure of the length because I guess with the Supreme Court, each side gets 30 minutes to talk. But we don't know exactly when this is going to start talking. So NPR will an- analyze at the beginning. We'll have the 30 minutes of the Supreme Court and then a little bit analysis at the end. And that's going to be on Thursday, February 8th. For all my legal junkie fans, are you – do you – does this interest you? Do you listen to these kind of things, or is it you're just a well-informed I definitely well will be citizen? listening, and um, I've, I've been to the Supreme Court a couple of times. Not to argue a case, I don't ever intend or expect to be arguing before those nine justices, but I have been in the court two times while it was in session. One was back in 1998 when I got admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court, and another time was back in, I believe, 2019 when uh, I was privileged to go with uh, three applicants for admission to the Supreme Court bar, and I got to stand in front of uh, Chief Justice Roberts and make the oral motion for admission to the bar of those three. And um, 
I, I'm, I'm surprised I could get the words out. It's just such an impressive experience going into that courtroom. And um, I didn't realize it, but the arguments are live streamed routinely. Now, I think that is a, a post-COVID move for the court. It would be great, in my opinion, if they did live video so that people could actually see what's going on in there. But um, I don't know if maybe that's only something that appeals to lawyers, the uh, thought of visiting the Supreme Court. But if you're in Washington, uh, they have what they call the three-minute line, where you can stand in line, and they just march you through, and you get to be in the chambers for about three minutes while a case is being argued. But uh, the case I heard in 2019 was one with a Mississippi connection. It was that Curtis Flowers case out of uh, Winona, out of Montgomery County. And uh, MPB has a podcast on that, on In Legal Terms. There's a a great uh, show also, I can't think of the name on it, that covered it and really kind of did some of the investigatory work that led to that case ultimately making it to the Supreme Court. But uh, I was privileged to... Uh, sit through the entire argument. And um, afterwards, we were all out on the plaza where uh, news conferences were being heard, and I got to meet Nina Totenberg. Oh, my favorite, uh, oh, all things considered, oh, yeah. uh, MP or uh, National Public Radio um, commentator. And uh, that was a, a great experience getting to meet her. I got my picture taken. Uh, with her there on the uh, plaza of the court. She's a celebrity in and of herself. Exactly. So on Tuesday, October 13th, 2020, Flowers v. Mississippi, we have an In Legal Terms podcast on that. Great. I will probably want to go back and listen to that myself. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.org mpbonline.org. Our host is usually Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I am Liz Gill. So your rights are being determined right now. You can find out what is going on with our Mississippi legislature because the next season of the MPB News Program at Issue is going to be starting Friday. Friday, Friday, Friday. Friday, February 9th at 630 on MPB Think Radio. So it's on radio this year. Um, there's going to be additional content on the MPB YouTube channel. So you'll be able to get bonus that way for all of our legal legal fans. Now, Michael Gidry from MPB News will be joined by Republican Austin Barber and Democrat Brandon Jones for weekly recaps roundtable discussions about current issues. And hey, don't forget, Will Stribling is our at the state capitol as our MPB news legislative reporter. Now, we are talking about wills and estates today with our friend of the show, attorney Kelly Kyle from the firm Kyle Wynn. I have a whole list of questions to ask him, but we're going to take Joy's question first. Joy from Jackson, we're glad you called in. What's your comment or question? Hi, yes. Um, I was wondering what is the best uh, way to to leave your automobile to a family member when it's the only asset you have, and I don't want to have to go through probate for that. 
Well, Joy, guess what? I've got a way for you to avoid probate. If there's just a motor vehicle, you can do that by putting someone else on the title with you as the transfer on death recipient. And um, Liz had given me a heads up as to what your question was. I was trying to do a little research um, to find where you can get that form. Um, The Department of Revenue has uh, a section on it where you can get all of the automobile tax and tag uh, title forms. But I'm not seeing that one on there. I would suggest go to your local tax collector's office. That's where you go to do all of your uh, automobile tag transactions. If you're in Jackson, you probably go downtown to the Chantry building that's at 316 South President Street. And the tax collector's office is immediately on the left when you walk in. And uh, just tell them that you want to add somebody as the transfer on death uh, recipient on your title. And when you ultimately pass away, if you have done that, the person will then be able to go to the tax collector's office in the county where they live and uh, present your death certificate. And the Department of Revenue will transfer the title from you to them. And if you uh, buy another vehicle before you ultimately pass away, just go ahead and have it set up that way uh, when you take title to it at purchase. Okay. Well, what if um, the title is still held at the bank because it's not paid off yet? Uh, That's a good question. And I don't entirely know the answer to that. I don't know if the bank would uh, surrender the title for you to make that uh, notation at the time, or you may have to wait until it's paid off and then you get the title and do it that way. Sorry, I don't know all of the details about that process. Okay. All right. Yeah, I was just concerned if, um, you know, something happened to me before I get it completely paid off. Well, let me tell you this, too. Don't worry too much about it because... Uh, again, if the automobile is really the only asset and nothing else is going to have to go through probate, and keep in mind if you own any real estate uh, or if you have bank accounts greater than about $50,000, then it might be necessary to do a probate, probably would be necessary to do a probate. But um, again, if the automobile is the only thing you have and you pass away and have not done that transfer on death notation on it, your uh, heir, your beneficiary, can get another form from the Department of Revenue's website, and uh, all of your heirs would have to sign it and say who they want it transferred to. So it could still avoid probate that way. Okay. Thank you very much. Certainly. Glad to hear from you. Thanks, Joy. Well, this does lead into uh, my first question. So when when we talk about estate estate planning, Downton Abbey estate planning, <laughs> you, you don't have to have millions. So um, uh, let's talk about kids. Kids go kids who turn eighteen. Maybe they move out. Maybe they go to college. Maybe what kind of estate planning would they need? Uh, you know, we say everyone has an estate and everyone needs a plan. Um, a, a person who's under 21 um, probably doesn't have too much that's in their own name. They probably don't even own a car. It's probably still in mom and dad's name. They almost certainly don't own real estate at that point. Um, we do say that 
minors, you know, people under 21 could still benefit by getting one of the basic estate planning documents that we recommend, and that is an advanced health care directive. And very importantly, it also needs to include HIPAA provisions in it because uh, parents might think, oh, my 18-year-old I've sent away to Ole Miss or uh, State or Southern Miss or wherever for college. And if something happened to them, if they were in an accident, uh, the hospital would call me and I would be able to uh, make the decisions for them and all of that. That may or may not be the case because when that uh, younger person, that child, and the example we cite is always that child that you have taken to the doctor for every visit up until they're you know 16 or 18 years old, um, and their doctor was able to tell you what's going on with them, all of that. That ends when they become 18 because HIPAA all of a sudden applies to them. And HIPAA, for those that may not know, is a very comprehensive set of federal medical privacy regulations. And it says a person that HIPAA applies to uh, information about them can't be released to anybody without a written consent on file. So uh, we think an advanced health care directive is really one of the most important documents that you can have. And we tell our parents if it's important for you to have one, it's also important for uh, your minor children. And keep in mind, in Mississippi, if you're under 21, you're still a minor. A lot of states, it's 18. But, um, yeah, we do recommend kids going off to college at least have that advanced health care directive in place. And you probably want your parent on the bank account because then it's easier to put the money in. <laughs> That's another good way of looking at it. <laughs> and for everyone who's keeping score, In Legal Terms has a podcast on HIPAA. That was from thir- Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. So, all right, we've, we've, uh, we've turned 18. We got our, our HIPAA. We've, um, we've, we've started on the idea of estate planning. Now, what happens after we're an adult? Maybe we're married or we have a house. What kind of estate planning does this individual need? It all depends on where that individual wants their assets to go when they pass away. Um, I tell people, if you don't do estate planning for yourself, guess what? Estate planning has been done for you already. But It's, as I like to say, the one-size-fits-all, one-size-fits-none estate plan that the state of Mississippi is going to force down uh, upon your family. Because if you haven't done your planning, uh, and there is a probate necessary, and again, that's going to be if you have any interest in any real estate whatsoever. It doesn't matter how small the interest is. If you own real estate, it has to go through probate for that to uh, pass to the next owner. Um, If you have uh, bank accounts greater than $50,000, that's going to require a probate. But if you don't do planning, if you don't have a will, that planning is going to be the state's plan. And it's going then to go where Mississippi Code says that it has to go. If you're married, it will all go to your spouse. If you have a spouse and, let's say, three children – It's going to be divided in four equal shares, one for the spouse, one for each child. If you don't have a spouse and don't have children, then it's going to go to your siblings um, and also include your parents in there as well. 
If no siblings or parents, then it's going to go down to nieces and nephews. And if there are none of those, then it could go to cousins, however distant. Um, But all of the people that are most closely related to you within that same category are going to divide what you have in equal shares among them. And this is a pretty rare occasion. I'm not sure that I have ever seen it happen myself. But if there are no relatives within uh, a certain degree of kinship to you, then there's nobody that is eligible to inherit, and that property goes to the state. It escheats to the state. And nobody— oh, wait, what's that word? This is Escheat, an- E-S-C-H-E-A-T. And again, if you haven't done planning and you don't have any close relatives, it goes to the state. And nobody would want to see that happen. All right. So we are we're we're learning, you know, starting from the the moment you become an adult and have responsibility, autonomy over yourself, you might need estate planning if you can't have autonomy over yourself. If That's you're right. if you're in the hospital or something and then you know just all going forward. Yeah. And you know, we say Estate planning is not just about what happens when you die. It's about what happens if you become incapacitated while you're still alive. Um, And having at least a power of attorney is a good way to avoid that. Uh, That gives somebody of your choosing the ability to manage your business affairs. But um, powers of attorney have a couple of drawbacks. Number one, they end at your death. They're not valid for a moment after you pass away. People are sometimes surprised. We had somebody call the office not all that long ago, and said, I need to get a power of attorney over my mother who's passed away. And I said, well, that's impossible. You, you can't do that. It wouldn't be valid even if you had one before she died. Um, but if you haven't taken the step of getting that power of attorney, and again, those end at your death, and we also point out, a lot of people are not aware of this, a power of attorney does not have to be recognized. It does not have to be honored. Banks are perfectly within their rights to uh, not even look at your power of attorney and just pass it back across the desk and say, sorry, we don't honor powers of attorney. So uh, while it's better to have one than not, uh, they don't work in all circumstances, but there is something that you can rely on, and that is something called a revocable trust. And that's what we in our practice, my law partner, Ms. Wynn, and I Uh, recommend for the majority of our clients because it gives them the ability to avoid probate after you die. It allows them to avoid conservatorship if you become incapacitated because you've put all of your assets with very few exceptions into this trust and then you are the trustee of it but you've also said who your successor trustee will be and that's the person that takes over in the event you die in the event you need to resign or in the event you have become incapacitated. And that's the estate plan that your family will thank you for and love you more even after you've passed away. But well, we will get into more into that. We answer some more questions. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is usually our expert host. He is not here today. I'm Liz Gill. And hey, we do hope you subscribe to our podcast. I've mentioned a couple of our podcast episodes. And if you've subscribed to them, then you've probably already got them in your podcasting app. You can also find MPB Think Radio recordings for all of Think Radio 
on mpbonline.org slash radio. So before Valentine's Day, which is next Wednesday, a week from tomorrow on February 14th, um, February 12th, that's Monday. That is this next Monday. It's the primary election voter registration deadline. So applicants who register in person in the circuit clerk's office on that day and those who mail in their registration applicants postmark no later than February 12th will be eligible to vote in the March 12th primary elections. So if you want to have a say on the uh, who is nominated by one party or the other, so remember, you can vote in either. You can't. You have to pick one and vote in that primary. But uh, it's for president. It's the four House representative seats and also Senator Roger Wicker's Senate seat. You have to be registered to vote Monday. You know, get there. Get it, get it postmarked or get registered to vote so that you can vote in the primary because... There's no, no, don't whine if you don't vote. And I don't know. Sometimes I, well, I'm not going to get into what I do. (laughs) We are talking about wills and estate planning with our guest, Kelly Kyle, from the firm of Kyle Wynn. And we are going to go to Fletch in Ridgeland. Fletch, we're glad you called into this show. What's going on? What's your comment or question? pulling through Carrollton at the moment, but I just learned that uh, power of attorney ceases uh, when they decease. Is an executor of the state the next the next necessary title? Yes, sir. So I'm glad I taught you something this morning. You, you didn't know that a power of attorney ends at death, but it does. So uh, when the authority under that power of attorney uh, disappears with the death of uh, the person that made it, uh, if that person had a will, then yes, the uh, next uh, vacancy that somebody has to step into is that of executor. Um, If they didn't have a will, then the name is different. It's called an administrator of the estate. But they're still the one that is taking that estate through the probate process. So, yeah, it goes from agent under your power of attorney to an executor under your will or an administrator if you don't have a will. But, um, you know, like I said, in my firm, we've been doing this. uh, My firm's been around for about 45 years. I've been with it for the last 14. Um, We think there's a better way of uh, doing that uh, doing estate planning, and it's through something called a revocable trust. And in that instance, the person who's going to take over for you, either in the event of your incapacity or your death, is called a successor trustee. And they're able to do their job uh, very easily and very efficiently because, best of all, they're able to stay out of the court system because you have given them the authority that they need in that trust document that says when I have become incapacitated or if I have needed to resign for whatever reason, they're going to step in. Or ultimately, when I pass away, they'll step in at that time. But again, completely bypasses the court system. And that's 
again, just a, a much better way of doing things. We we think people want to avoid court if at all possible, um, and that's what we try to help our clients and their families do. So, if you're a, if you're an executor, you don't need to be an administrator or a successor in in any of those combinations, right? Yeah, you're going to be one or the other. You're going to be executor if the person has a will, and you're going to be administrator if they didn't leave a will, and you're going to be a successor trustee if you uh, said a will is not what I want to do for my family. I'd rather have a trust, and that's when they're going to serve as a successor trustee. Who can revoke that revocable trust? The What we call the trustor, the person that creates the trust. Uh, when we create a trust, you have three roles. We have the trustor, the one who creates it. We have the trustee, who is the one that is in charge of it, of managing the assets and doing all of those things. And then we have the beneficiary, who, just like it sounds, is the one that benefits from it. And when you have a revocable trust, you are the trustor, the trustee, and the beneficiary as well during your lifetime. But then uh, you put in the trust who you want to serve in the event you can't serve any longer, again, due to death, resignation, or incapacity. That person is called your successor trustee. And then we have the contingent beneficiaries, the ones that are going to benefit from the trust after you're deceased. And uh, again, it's just a much better way of doing things because it allows those beneficiaries to receive their inheritance and not have to wait for it, not have to go through the court system. Although, if you have beneficiaries that you want to make them wait for it, if you want them to receive their inheritance as they get older, and frequently uh, we will recommend that um, parents leave assets to their children by giving them a little bit at 21, a greater share at 25, maybe a larger share at 30, and then a uh, final distribution at 35, although those numbers can be car- uh, you know, customized any way you want them to be. Um, the trust is a great way of doing that as well. People sometimes aren't good at managing money, and the last thing you would want them to do is have a large amount of funds dumped into their lap all at one time. Well, so it's not revocable after the trustee passes. It is not. It becomes irrevocable. It may still carry the name the John Smith Revocable Trust, but by its terms, it has become irrevocable with John Smith's death. Good deal. Thanks so much. Good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Now, we did get an email, and this person says, in what situation will you recommend using transfer for death deed to pass on your property? All right. A very good question. And um, as you were reading that, my first initial response was I wouldn't recommend it in any circumstances, but I'll back off that just a little bit. Let me explain about the transfer on death deed. This is something that the legislature passed several years ago. I don't remember exactly when, maybe about 2020 or so. Um, And they did that because lots of other states have transfer on death deeds. But the legislature didn't really take it as far as perhaps they should have if they want to make this an effective way of transferring property. Because the way it works is this. You sign the transfer on death deed. It has to be filed with the Chantry Clerk's office in the county where the property is located. 
And it says, at my death, um, I give to my child or my children or whoever, I give this specific parcel of real property. It has to have the description and all that in it. And that deed is itself revocable. You could file a, a document revoking that deed before you pass away. But when you pass away, property uh, conveyed in that deed is supposed to pass to its intended beneficiary, but it doesn't affect the rights of potential creditors that you may have out there. And you may say, oh, I don't have any creditors. Nobody would be coming after my estate after my death. Well, if the person who receives that property from you wants to sell it within, say, three, three years and 90 days of your death, they're not going to be able to sell it because they don't have what we call marketable title to the property. No uh, outside purchaser is going to want to buy that property from you because even if you had a sterling credit rating and owed nobody a penny at the time you passed away, there could still be potential creditors out there. And the transfer on death deed does not cut off those creditors potential claims. So in order to do that, you would still have to go through a probate process. And part of the probate process is filing a notice to creditors with the court, having that run in the newspaper for three consecutive weeks. And the creditors have 90 days after that uh, publication to file their claims. If they miss the 90-day window, they're out of luck. But probate has effectively cut off the claims of those creditors, real or potential, but the transfer on death deed, unfortunately, doesn't do that. So I have only done uh, transfer on death deeds very few times since it has been implemented, and it could possibly work if there's not going to be a need to sell the property for, like I said, more than three years after the transferor's death. But that's really the only time that it really has any uh, utility. If the property is going to need to be sold immediately after death or soon after, uh, a transfer on death deed is not going to do what you want it to. All right. We have got so many phone calls. We are going to keep plowing. Let's go to Ed, who's called in from New Orleans. Ed, thanks for calling in legal terms. What's your comment or question? Uh, my question, I guess, uh, more than a comment, is uh, a difference between a will which goes through probate and a trust. My understanding that some attorneys that do wills prefer wills because after it goes through probate, I think you just address that with property, uh, then if someone decides to sue your estate, it's a done deal. They can't do it. Uh, but in a trust that doesn't go through probate, the... Um, they can, you know, six months, a year, or whatever after death, if they, they can sue the trust. Is that correct? So here's how we handle uh, when a, a client of ours passes away and they have a revocable trust. We sort of avail ourselves of that same ability to publish a notice to creditors in the newspaper. Um, and even if the person has a trust, we don't have to go through probate, but we can still publish. We uh, are not filing anything with the court, but we just send a, a notice to the newspaper 
that says on uh, the first day of January 2024, John Doe, who resided in Hines County, Mississippi, passed away. He was the trustor and trustee and beneficiary of the John Doe Revocable Trust. And creditors are now given 90 days within which to file their claim against the estate. And we keep that proof of publication or actually send it to uh, the successor trustee of the trust. And they then, if they're going to need to sell property, can show that uh, proof of publication or even file it with the deed uh, of the trust property that they're selling. But um, again, that's that's a, a benefit to the trust. We can still cut off those creditors' claims but not have to go through the entire probate process. Does that also cut off any suits of the estate for something that wouldn't be a debt? Yes, it would. Uh, if, if you A claim is defined not only as money owed by the deceased but also a potential lawsuit against them. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that answers my question. Thanks a lot. You bet. Good to hear from you. How are things in NOLA? You getting ready for Mardi Gras? Getting ready for Mardi Gras. It's already popping. Okay. Well, have fun. Thanks. Yeah, I've heard traffic. Traffic. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> you can't get from point A to point B because of traffic. Yep. Um, we have one of our favorite frequent callers on the line. Let's go to Roger from Florence. Uh, Roger, I don't think I've talked to you this year. Happy New Year, and we're glad you've called in. What's your comment or question on wills and estates? Happy New Year to you, well, Roger. Good to good to talk to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to all of you. You know, you do a great job, Kelly. As you know, good morning, good night. But I was, I have to say this, it was uh, well. One question, real quick. Uh, uh, is, is that cutting off of claims by virtue of a publication about a trust beneficiary that has not been tested in court, or is that a black and white statutory provision? Roger, it, it's a relatively new statute, and. I don't remember exactly when it came about, and it's not one that I can cite to you uh, with the statute number, but um, it's something we rely upon, and, you know, most importantly, I know that our uh, lawyers that do title work are giving it every bit the credence that they do to the probate process. So we've not run up on any problems uh, with it, at least I've not in my practice that one of these days each claim is going to say that they don't get the right dues and so they didn't know about this and it'll be tested. My comment though was the fellow called and asked a direct question of you about a uh, power of attorney and said without equivocation that it the person who drafted it but you did not mention that in doing the power of attorney should have, and so that's that's a instance. I wish real quickly you would explain that. Roger, let me get you to ask that again. Roger, you, you're fading in and out, and we we missed the very crux of your question. The very crux of our question is that there is such a thing as a valid, enduring power of attorney, whose purpose is to survive the death 
or in incapacity of the person who drafted it, who gave agency to the agent. And so that functions quite well. It does not substitute for all the other discussion that you had, but I think you should have mentioned that, Kelly, and I hope you'll explain it now. Uh, I thank you. Okay. Um, Roger, you've certainly been in this legal business longer than I have um, and obviously did some years on the bench as well. A durable power of attorney um, is one that is designed to uh, be valid past the incapacity of the uh, person granting it, the grantor. Um, But I've never heard of a power of attorney that survived death. Uh, you may know something I don't, and if you do, I'd, I'd like you to give me a call maybe after the show. You know how to reach me um, and discuss that. But uh, power of attorney, as far as I'm aware, does not survive past death, and even a even the best durable power of attorney does not have to be honored by anybody. Uh, and we know of banks that do business right here in the Jackson area that simply do not honor powers of attorney simply because there's no requirement that they do so. Well, we'll give uh, uh, our guest, Kelly Kyle, some time to do a little bit of research and have him back on if uh, if we get some new information. Roger, we love it when you call in. Thank you so much. We're getting up to the end of the show. We have two more questions. Uh, here is a, an email. I want to reward our email uh, people. This one is Oh, this this is more of a philosophical one. How do I equi- equitably divide my personal possessions? My spouse has passed, and dividing his possessions is more of the issue as there are hard feelings between the siblings. I did see Dr. Buttress just walk in. This might be a Dr. Buttress uh, whole show on how you divide your possessions, especially if there's some hard feelings. Um I think the best way to do it is put it in writing. And when we do planning for our clients, whether it's a will, whether it's a trust, we also give them the opportunity to attach a, uh, we call it a memorandum dealing with tangible personal property. And they can make that list and say where the items go. Um, I've had others that take a slightly different approach and um, they kind of, I don't want to say turn it into a game, but they'll say let all of the kids choose uh, an item and maybe they start with the oldest and they choose what they want. Then it goes to the middle child, then to the next, and they just start again over and over until all of those personal items um, have have been distributed. And that way, uh, if you're afraid there will be hard feelings after you're gone because you didn't give – uh, little Johnny, the grandfather clock, or something like that. Uh, make turn it into a game of chance, and that way it's just the luck of the draw. Okay, real quick, we you've got some. We'll have all of your uh, current seminars on this website. W- what areas? Where, so we know how far someone has to travel. Have you got? Well, if you live in uh, anywhere around Pearl. Uh, Clinton, Vicksburg, Madison, or Ridgeland, we're going to have our estate planning seminars during the week of February the 20th. And you can get information about those on our website, kyle-win.com. And um, those seminars are a great way to 
get a crash course in estate planning. Sorry we couldn't get to you, Hank. Send us an email. Thanks, Trey Campbell, our phone screener. Thanks, Abram Nanny. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thank you.